That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. Today, my guest is Ami Daniel, a co-founder and CEO of Windward, a company that uses data and technology to solve maritime challenges. At this difficult time with the war in Ukraine, the attack, the invasion on Ukraine, there's a lot going on, a lot of things that have to do with supply chain also, a lot of Russian ships that are floating around in the ocean trying to find places to unload their cargo. This is a space we all should be paying attention to. Ami, I have to tell you, your last show was wildly popular. Tons of listeners, uh, more than some of my others. And I can't tell if it was your personality, my personality, your charm. I have no idea, but welcome back. Thank you. It's probably probably my looks, I think. (laughs) Oh, it's a podcast. No, so it's probably not my looks. Okay. (laughs) I've been told I have a face for the radio, so that's probably part of it. So we have some serious stuff to talk. Um, you know, a lot has changed in the world since we last spoke. Um, terrible, terrible uh, war going on in Ukraine, an invasion, an attack on the Ukrainian people and the country. And no doubt that that affects supply chains, trade flows and all that. And I can't think of a better person to comment on that. So why don't we start initially with you giving us your view on what is happening now to trade flows between Russia and the Western world? Sure. So um, I think this is maybe one of the biggest tipping points we've seen in the last 30, 40 years, and that cannot be underestimated. Uh, Back when the Iron Curtain fell, you would have seen a lot of Western companies flock to Russia to do business. And actually today in EFT, you've had the guy who's now our chairman, Lord Brown, uh, and then in BP, in a picture with Putin cutting a deal on oil fields in a deal that became made BP very, very successful back in the early 90s. And to some extent, the recent month has very surprisingly rolled us back 30 years to the Iron Curtain days. So Russia in the last 20 years, maybe until 2014 or until two weeks ago, was very much connected to the Western world. So let me give you some stats, and I think that, that can help. Russia exports about 8 million barrels of oil. Uh, let's go 7.8 million. Uh, out of about 80 million globally. So you're talking about 10% of the world's oil, oil, give or take. That's a lot, right? It produced, provides about 40% of the energy to uh, Germany, also via gas, via pipes. You have Nord Stream 1, which is already built, and Nord Stream 2, which, if I remember correctly, while you were in the, the Trump administration, Jason, actually it was, some of it was sanctioned because of the fear of exactly what we're seeing now happening, which is Germany not being not able to uh, turn off the switch on Russian energy to Europe. From the perspective of exports of food between Ukraine and Russia, 
I think it's about 20% of the world's wheat or something like that. So that's a lot of wheat and a lot of food. Uh, if you look at seafarers, then 14% of the world's seafarers, one 4%, are Russian and Ukrainian together, which puts them as the number, combined as the number one nation. Uh, so I think that has a lot of impact. You have a train from Russia into Europe taking about 1.5 million containers a year. Uh, that's not going to work right now uh, because of the conflict. So across the board, I think you have a lot of impacts. Gas, oil, wheat, they're, they're all affected. Also, imports into Russia are affected. Rio Tinto in Australia has a lot of joint ventures in Russia for building steel. And basically, you would have seen all the majors, all super majors involved in Russia in some way or the other, uh, or the other, Equinor, Total, Shell, BP, Exxon, Chevron. So I think this has really far-reaching implications that are not going to end in a week or two. I think all the world just waking up to that. We can, we can discuss it further down uh, this conversation. Let's talk about oil specifically. How much Russian oil is still out there on the water? And are you able to tell through your sophisticated AI systems where it's actually going? Yeah. So, so the answer is, uh, I think last time I checked, I saw about 50 million barrels floating. I suspect now it's more. So I think what we've seen is that many of them, much more so than we've ever seen, are without a destination. So there's a huge uptick in cargoes that are not going anywhere. And the vessel is just floating around looking for a buyer. If you would have seen Shell, uh, uh, which very publicly bought Russian crude at a discount of 28 bucks a barrel about two weeks ago, uh, made a U-turn and publicly um, uh, apologized for that and said they would donate uh, the profits from that. Just today, and it's March 24th, as we uh, record this podcast, Total was uh, known to actually buy crude from Russia just two weeks after their CEO went on Zero Week and said, we're not going to buy any more crude from Russia. <laughs> so Cynicism, uh, hypocrisy, what is it? Um, I, I don't know. That's the straightforward answer, but I can tell you so what we're seeing is something very, very interesting. So if you were to take a step back and look at the last 20 years in the legal compliance business, you would have seen businesses do the absolute minimum of legal compliance. And that makes sense because traders, just the way traders are built, they want to buy and sell stuff and make what's called ARB, the arbitrage, right? Which is that the marginal money. However, in the last few weeks, what we've seen is the whole world turned over its head completely and do not the minimum compliance, but the maximum compliance. So you would have seen Apple, Nike, Walmart, about 330, 340, very big international firms pull out completely out of Russia, although they don't have to. And I think that's the point here, Jason. And I have to tell you that I think I'm starting to see a pattern. So I think people are doing the maximum are companies who sell to consumers. So I think these are companies, like Nike is a good example. Uh, or McDonald's, or Ikea. So it is companies who are connected to the end consumer and are worried about that, or European companies. So basically, those that think that they're going to have a black guy, a PR black guy, are on top of it. But those that can still get away with it because it's legal, they're uh, biding their time until they're going to have to face the music, so to speak. So my intuition was, there's the West and there's Russia. You, The U.S. is leading the West. And therefore, the U.S. will take the most moral approach like Apple or uh, Nike took. 
However, in different conversations, I think a different reality is appearing that sometimes some people in the U.S. feel it's not their problem yet. It's a European problem. It's on European soil. Yes, there are energy issues, but the U.S. is much stronger from an energy perspective. This Saudi can ramp up oil production from the 10.8-ish they do today, million barrels a day, to 12 million barrels. The U.S. can cut a deal with Venezuela and get that oil flowing, can cut a deal with Iran and get that oil flowing. It will probably be cutting a deal with Iran. I certainly hope not, but it might be looking that way. You're right. I don't know. I'm reading the media. I don't have any. Yeah, no, I, you know. I think you're making a statement based on the media, and I, I just hope that what the media is saying is wrong, because it would be a very bad deal for America, in my opinion. Well, you know, usually in these cases, actually, what the media says is correct, because they're being briefed by somebody. I don't, I don't <laughs> think it's it's unbased assumptions at, at this point. Um, but But I think, I was wondering, what do you think about that? Is this a global problem or is this just a Europe problem? Uh, so answering in reverse, and this is great because now you're interviewing me. I think that um, you're right. The consumer forward companies are definitely very front and center here. They realize they have to be. And I think those that aren't, it's just a matter of time before they're going to have to face the music, whether it's going to be some you know, investigative journalist who exposes it, customers who realize that you know, not, not everything is as it seems they're going to have to catch up quickly. So if they think they're going to get away with it, I, I think they're mistaken. As far as is it an American problem, you know, I think our country is struggling with it because on the one hand, it certainly is a European problem and we can't be the ones who police the entire world, even our friends and allies in Europe, as much as we're close to them and want to protect them. You know, they should have known better. Uh, you're, you're right to have referenced Nord Stream 1 and the Trump administration's view and Germany's big problem. But at the same time, it's also potentially inevitable, especially because of NATO, that this becomes America's problem, whether we like it or not. So I'm glad that we're working together with our allies in Europe, but I do think they're the ones that bear the brunt of the responsibility to try to make this go away as best as they possibly can. We should support them, but we shouldn't be playing a leading role. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think what we've seen is really an unprecedented view of sanctions. So, so sanctions used to be more focused. Uh, I don't think that we've seen such a superpower like Russia, you know, G7 country, a G7 country. In three weeks, the world has created really a flurry of sanctions to basically take them out of the world system. I think there are a few practical problems Russians have right now. Um, so from our data, we've rolled out, uh, we've built during the conflict and rolled out two weeks ago, a dedicated Russia-specific due diligence solution to help businesses navigate the sanctions compliance and ESG considerations for Russia. So what we're seeing is really interesting, Jason. Basically, about half of the people or the companies are not willing to fuel Russian vessels. So if you're a Russian-owned vessel, and as the UK defines it, and I think the UK has gone very far, much farther uh, than the US, by the way. The UK doesn't allow Russian vessels in it, but in a very, very wide definition. So when they said, you know, I spoke to one of the banks yesterday that is one of our customers, a really big international bank, and I asked him just one question. Uh, Obviously, they said we're worried about working with Russia, yada, 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 and asked them, that's very interesting. But when you say Russia, what do you mean? So Jason, what do you think they mean when they say Russia? I would think they mean the government and any ship that's flagged in Russia as opposed to Panama, let's say. 
So they don't know what they mean. <laughs> so that's that's the that's the point. So uh, yeah, yes, there's a very you know narrow definition, which is Russian government. I Sokomflot, the Russian uh, 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 national shipping company, was put in today uh, into the blacklist by the U.S. and the U.K. Before that, they were secondary sanctions. Now they're primary sanctions, I believe. Literally, like a few hours ago. But that's obvious. So the U, if you take the U.K. definition, that's the most broad definition there is. This basically says Russian Russian flagged vessels, Russian government-owned vessels, but they also say Russian-affiliated vessels or vessels connected to Russia. So that means you should go in the ownership corporate tree and look for more than 50% ownership that at the top gets to Russia. And as you know, shipping uh, uh, is a very great business where you can have different levels of ownership and you know, off- offshore uh, companies and so forth. So I think a lot of the businesses, Jason, don't really know what to do right now. You know, what's Russian? I think it's an interesting story for the listeners. One of my customers, which is a shipping company, told me one of his customers, an oil major, called him to say, they want to cancel a charter agreement with the vessel, basically the agreement to move cargo from point A to point B, because the master of the ship, the captain, has a Russian passport. So that's more of an emotional reaction, perhaps, than a legal reaction. I, I think it shows you the world doesn't have really um, a clear boundary or a clear definition. And that creates a lot of uncertainty in markets. And the one thing markets don't like is uncertainty. The Russian vessels that we're seeing that aren't able to fuel, a lot of them are going back home. So the vast majority of it, so, so basically trade in Russia has been halved in terms of uh, uh, ocean-borne shipments. Containerized goods is like down 80%, but broadly Russian trade is down 50%. But from the 50% that's still happening, most of it is Russian vessels coming back home because they can't fuel anywhere and they can't trade anywhere. And actually, trade in the Baltics is up 20%. So I think that's there are very interesting trends uh, to look at there. And so basically, these ships that are floating around waiting for buyers, eventually, most of them, if, they're, if they don't find the buyer, will just have to go home. Yeah. And, and the, way, the way oil works, or, or go to China, by the way, mm-hmm. or become floating storages. So, so I think there are some resemblances to what you can learn from Venezuela and specifically Iran. So in the early days of you know, the Trump administration stepping out of the JCPOA, you would have seen Iran's oil industry change a bit. The thing with oil wells, you can just stop them and restart them. It's a physical thing. You can either maintain them or kill them completely. But you can't, you can't do like peaks and troughs of production. So that's why Iran on paper can produce 2.5 million barrels, but probably right now they actually can produce 800, 900K. Uh, barrels, maybe a million barrels, because they haven't produced the full capacity for a long while. So, so you would have seen Iran keep producing that oil, but putting in floating storage outside of Bandera Abbas uh, and Karg Island. And I suspect we could see Russian oil start to use these old vessels as floating storages as China buys it bit by bit. So I think that's one thing we might see. Another thing we're seeing is so the Trump administration, again, issued something called deceptive shipping practices, which is basically how ships get away from sanctions busting, turning off transmission, changing identities and so forth. When the Trump administration 
stepped out of the JCPOA, you would have seen Iran, and we saw Iran, with a huge surge of these deceptive shipping practices. And Venezuela is doing the same. Basically, to step around U.S. sanctions, right? So my prediction is we're going to start seeing Russia do the same. Because Russia doesn't want people to look at every cargo of oil and say, Total bought this, Vital bought that, Shell bought that, this guy bought that. Because the Western media is all over it right now. And actually, the daily updates we've been issuing and the weekly updates we've been issuing has been, have been read at, at this point by 1.5 billion people in the last three weeks. So all eyes are on Russia and trade, basically. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago about how Iran basically is skirting the sanctions, and not specific to shipping. But when I read that, I also thought this obviously is going to, you know, if, if Iran figured it out, Russia will figure it out too very quickly. So I hear what you're saying on the uh, deceptive shipping practices. Yeah, and some technology, some Iranian way or technology is is uh, 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 originated from Russia. So, so actually Russia has been helping, I think, to some extent, or teaching through, I suspect, Iran and Venezuela. Um, and actually GPS spoofing, uh, we've seen a lot of that, which is basically jamming of GPS in Syria when the Russians bombed there. Uh, and that has an impact on sea navigation as well as any other navigation. So we're starting to see that in the Black Sea as well. And we've seen some of that technology being used in the last 12 months by Venezuela and Iran. So I think this is going to go down very quickly because there is no way I think that the West is going to roll back all these sanctions in the next few weeks. Actually, I think the West will be putting in more and more sanctions, not less. And they have to do something like that to, to, to skirt these sanctions. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Let's talk about food. So there was an article this morning, all week actually, about how fertilizer is becoming more and more expensive that is clearly going to impact the food supply chain. Can you share any insight on how worried people should be about the food supply chain in the coming period? Yeah, I think they should be very worried uh, because a lot of the wheat has traditionally come out of Ukraine, Russia, and it takes time to rebuild these supply chains. And actually, the president of the European Commission uh, came out yesterday with a public statement on Twitter that Putin is preventing hundreds of ships that take wheat from the Black Sea. Actually, we see 55 ships kind of being locked up in the Black Sea. Uh, we put that on Twitter and I actually tagged her and I'll see, let's see if she responds to me. <laughs> but, but, but absolutely, we're going to see rates rising. And I, I think this has been and will be remembered as a tipping point of the global supply chain because supply chain has become very global and very just-in-time oriented. So we've stretched our supply chains to make sure they're as profitable as possible. And you should think of supply chain as an equilibrium of, on the one side, you have efficiency and price, and on the other hand, you have resilience. And I think the world has, will be transitioning from just in time to just in case. So everybody will have to buy a lot more stock because just in case things don't arrive. 
So you used to have a black swan every two years. Now you have a black swan every month. Uh, it could be, you know, this, the vessel in the Suez Canal and the little digger that's trying to dig, dig it out. You, get, you have Ukraine-Russia war. You have Shenzhen lockdown uh, because of COVID. And all of this has a lagging effect. So absolutely, I think we'll see this both in the food supply chain as well as the containerized goods supply chain. And containerized goods, you know, in the last two years, freight rates are 20x up and reliability is 3x down. So it has never been more expensive in the history of mankind to ship a, bo- ship a box, and it has never been less reliable to ship a box. So, so I think this is not going away, and the only way is to be proactive on top of it, day by day, find a solution to get your goods from point A to point B. And absolutely, that is going to be one of the causes and drivers for inflation in the next couple of years. Ami Daniel, thank you for joining me. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, your extensive knowledge. uh, And thanks for making me feel a little bit more unsettled about life today. (laughs) Uh, Thanks. I think it's about, you know, staying on top of things and being proactive. uh, And things are changing so, so fast in the world. But, you know, that's the age we live in. So just we need to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Ami. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad I had Ami on as a guest again. Ami Daniel, the co-founder and CEO of Winward, a company that uses data and technology to solve maritime challenges. I do want to remind my guests, as I mentioned in the prior show with Ami, I am an options shareholder in Winward. I do consulting work from them from time to time. I was glad to have him on because he has his finger on the pulse of what's going on with the supply chain, especially on the high seas. The last part of the conversation in particular unsettled me in terms of what might happen with the food supply. I think this is a space we all need to be paying attention to. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. This is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.